It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains descriptions of murder and violence. We also would like to apologize if we mispronounce any names. In our previous two episodes, we told you all about the life and crimes of Francis Henry Bloth. He was a serial killer who hunted for victims in the diners and delis of Long Island's Suffolk County. He murdered three people in the summer of 1959. You might call him a spree killer, but we're going off the FBI's very simple definition of a serial killer. Bloth is someone who embarked on a series of two or more murders committed as separate events. He brutally killed people for no reason. He gloated about his crimes in the press once he was caught. Now it's time for the big twist you've probably been waiting for. Bloth is a free man today. 
He got out of prison after a little over two decades. If you're like us, you're probably a bit gobsmacked about that fact. When we filed a records request with New York State's Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, we received a response saying we needed a notarized form from Bloth to proceed. We knew that wasn't going to happen. The department also let us know that they're pretty sure they destroyed all the records around this case after the minimum retention period was up. So we didn't get the records, but we're still going to talk about why Bloth was released. And we'll also get into the context around the history of incarceration in the United States, with some help from John Jay College of Criminal Justice professor Robert McCree. My name is Anya Kane. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast. Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees. Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes, we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, The Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout season one to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes. We don't just rely on skimming the headlines. We dive into these cases to bring you in-depth coverage. We're the murder sheet, and this is The Other Long Island Serial Killer, part three. A conversation with John Jay College of Criminal Justice professor, Robert McCree. convicted of the murder of Irene Courier, a jury sentenced Bloth to die on the electric chair. Today, death sentences are infamous for taking decades to carry out. The criminal justice system was much swifter back in the 1960s, but Bloth was entitled to his appeals, and he ended up winning a right to a new trial. The reason? Newsday, a Long Island newspaper, had published his confession before his trial. By printing a confession that may have been untrue or even potentially inadmissible, the newspaper had tainted the jury pool. And so Bloth had not received the impartial juror panel he had been entitled to. Speaking as a journalist, I think Newsday was pretty irresponsible to run the confession as they did. I've appreciated a lot of their coverage in this case, but yikes. And Bloth himself was integral in his own defense. Don Smith of Newsday reported that the convicted killer was filing handwritten motions from his cell. The upshot of all of this was that Bloth got a new trial in Manhattan. The jury there ended up handing him yet another conviction and another death sentence. 
the evidence against him was just too strong to overcome. So Bloth ended up on death row in Sing Sing, where he spent his days working on a high school equivalency degree. He also campaigned to get his sentence commuted. In 1965, Bloth got the news he'd been waiting for. In light of new legislation that nearly abolished the death penalty in New York State, Governor Nelson Rockefeller commuted Bloth's death sentence to life in prison. Bloth and his fellow death row inmates would be spared the chair. But he wasn't satisfied with that. He kept up his bid for freedom. He reached out to Governor Rockefeller, who twice turned down his requests for clemency. In 1976, Bloth's ongoing efforts even made his hometown paper once more. Don Smith of Newsday reported that Bloth was striving to convince New York State Governor Hugh Carey to commute his sentence. As part of that scheme, he wrote a letter to the district attorney who'd put him away, John Cahalan. At that point, Cahalan had been appointed to the Empire State's Supreme Court. Justice Cahalan, Nothing can alter the past, but through education I have changed, Bloth wrote in May of 1976. But Cahalan was not moved. In good conscience, he wrote, I cannot support your application. Your letter evinces not the slightest hint of remorse for your terrible deeds. In my judgment, you should have been electrocuted. And if I were you, I would get down on my knees every day to thank God for the people who spared you. After the 1971 Attica uprising, Bloth made the newspapers once more. Only this time, he was serving on the Attica Inmates Liaison Committee as an advisor, according to Newsday. After being elected by their fellow inmates, members of this committee worked to better conditions at the infamous prison. John Cummings of Newsday reported that Bloth was one of four inmates who New York State had retaliated against for their role in a 1972 nonviolent work stoppage strike at the prison. Bloth's then attorney, Leonard Wexler, had released affidavits saying that Bloth and his companions had been stripped, searched, shackled, and taken by car to the Greenhaven Correctional Facility at the other end of the state. The state was forced to cop to the accusations. A few years later, Bloth appealed for his freedom on the grounds that his Fifth Amendment rights had been violated. Remember, Bloth's original attorney, Sidney Sibbon, told him to confess his deeds to the police, a move that most defense attorneys would strongly discourage. That certainly seems to leave room for a Fifth Amendment violation. But a U.S. District Court judge rejected that motion. The convicted killer wasn't going to go away quietly, though. Bloth even sat for an interview with Newsday in 1972. He was photographed for the piece. He looked bald and pudgy, with heavy glasses and a white prison uniform. He appeared significantly older than the wild-eyed young man who photographers first snapped decades earlier. As far as we can tell, Bloth did not mention the names of the three people he'd slaughtered for a few hundred dollars. Nor did he mention feeling any remorse for his crimes. 
He just talked about how his early experiences with the criminal justice system had messed him up. He also spoke about how he planned to continue to bombard the state with motions to release him. I still appeal without let-up. I'm going to cost the state a lot of money, he told Newsday in 1972. When he wasn't writing motions, Blow threw out some pretty bad poetry. One poem appeared in the August 1976 issue of the Syracuse Peace Council's Peace Newsletter. It's called Existence. Anya would now read that poem to you. In a small, lonely cell, you will while away time, thinking of how to better your mind. Magazines, newspapers, and books are all read, but your eyes soon grow tired and you head for your bed. And you'll awake in the morning, then eat a small meal. Emotional strain is all you will feel. Now the seed may be planted to increase your skill. A brain to be used, a life to fulfill. And throughout the day, as time passes by, you'll be seeking and searching, but never knowing why. For you know that each day will be like all the rest. You merely exist and hope for the best. You tire of hearing the same kind of talk. As the stories are the same, but you listen and walk. A stroll through the yard, surrounded by brick. At least 30 feet high and about 3 feet thick. Spotlights and towers with guns perch on high. You can't even enjoy a look at the sky. And you can't help but wonder who said life's divine as you sit in a cell and while away time. It appears like most of his energies during his incarceration seemed to go towards selfish concerns. In his poetry, in his statements to the press, in his letters seeking support, he didn't focus on his victims or wrestle with the wrongs he had committed. His actions were all about bettering his own conditions. But apparently that wasn't a problem for the New York State Parole Board. Under the terms of his new sentence, Bloth went up for parole in 1981. He got it straight away. On March 4, 1981, Bloth walked out of the Auburn Correctional Facility. Politicians and the loved ones of his victims were disgusted with the development. Echoing Kohalen's remarks from years before, State Senator Bernard Smith, who'd prosecuted Bloth in Manhattan, told Edward Kirkman of the Daily News that the release of Bloth was ill-conceived and absurd. He forfeited his right to live in society. If anything, the man should spend the rest of his natural days in prison and not be allowed out into society. Irene Courier's brother, Irving Bailey, told John Cummings and Tom DeMoretke of Newsday, he better leave this part of the country because someone may take a shot at him. Cummings and Demoretki of Newsday also touched base with some of the officials involved with the investigation into Blow's crimes, as well as his defense attorneys. He had the whole county upset at the time. They were afraid to go out nights, Chief Side Donnelly of Smithtown recalled. Bloth's former attorney, Sibbon, said he would not live in a shell over Bloth's release from prison. Wexler said he hadn't even been aware of the news. Bloth's former wife, Jane, couldn't be located for comment. 
Art Penny, the spokesperson for the Suffolk District Attorney's Office, said the county hadn't been properly notified of the release by the parole board. It's possible we received something. If we did, our recommendation would be that he should not be released and that he's a menace to society. But a spokesperson for the parole board named Paul Young pushed back in a statement to the New York Daily News. Long sentences just aren't given anymore, he said. The parole board sees guys coming up on homicides who will serve four, six, or eight years. We were concerned about the disparity of sentences. This guy was a prince in prison. So, in a few decades, Bloth had gone from a mad killer to a prince in prison. In 1988, Newsday ran a follow-up about the then 55-year-old Bloth's life. At the time, he was living upstate in Syracuse. He initially got a job at the office of his attorney, Faith Seidenberg, who is perhaps best known for suing the McSorley's Old Ale House in New York City over its males-only policy. Then, Bloth went to work as a word processor for the Onondaga Community College. Twice a month, he checked in with his parole officer. He's certainly done horrible things, but all the years in prison changed him, Seidenberg told Newsday. When he got out, he hung his prison jacket in his closet so he could remind himself he was not going back. A search of public records indicates that Bloth is now living in a modest home on a tree-lined street in Syracuse. He's around 89 years old today. So all of this left us wondering, how the heck could this happen? But we realize that we live in a country that leads the world in terms of mass incarceration. So we thought that maybe our attitudes were shaped by that, and that we should seek out more context. So we reached out to the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, an institution devoted to the study of various topics in crime and criminal justice. And we connected with Professor Robert McCree. Before he went into academia, he worked as a security guard in Toledo, Ohio. Eventually, he became a security consultant, and now is a professor who focuses on topics like workplace violence. He has also called for extensive prison reform in the United States. Kevin and I were shocked that Bloth got parole so quickly, given the nature of his crimes. But according to Professor McCree, that's largely because we're used to hearing about lengthier sentences. We are an outlier in, as a nation in terms of uh, punishment. We punish longer and more severely than most uh, than all other economically advanced countries. So when you hear someone like the, this uh, Mr. Bluth uh, being released after uh, after these uh, killings, you, you wonder um, how come. But McCree says that Bluth's release was not an aberration for the time. It is, it is an exceptional case, but not an extraordinarily exceptional one. And New York State in particular was working towards shorter sentences in the previous century. You, you know, it's interesting in Suffolk County, New York State was in many ways a pioneer in terms of issuing parole to, uh, to individuals. And right now, our 
parole rate is uh, down considerably over uh, most other states. So Bloth likely benefited from being in the right place at the right time. Professor McCree filled us in about the history of more lenient sentencing. Basically, when people talk about how back in the day things were stricter, it's fair to say that death sentences were carried out faster. But the judicial system, by and large, was more lenient in many respects. When, uh, when this occurred, this was one of the uh, periods of time when um, the number of persons in jail or prison was about at a historic low in this country. And for that matter, the, uh, the, the sentences were not particularly long either. And furthermore, in his case, the judicial activities in resulting in the prosecution uh, were not so finally worked out. And that probably led to from the sentence of death to a successful appeal. And uh, eventually from that appeal, you get eventually a new status and that status led to freedom. But in Bloth's case, it's not clear what exactly the parole board saw in him. He seemed like someone who was proud of his uh, killings at the, the time without remorse. That's another factor. Individuals who have been convicted for manslaughter or murder are not likely to be released unless their behavior while incarcerated is admirable. And also they show remorse for the event that they have perpetrated. But of course, we didn't see any public declarations of remorse from Bloth. To be frank with you, something about Bloth getting out seems wrong to us. He killed with impunity. We don't know what would move the parole board to release him. But it's fair to say that regardless, the U.S. has a problem with mass incarceration. As of 2016, 2.3 million people are incarcerated in the U.S. The American Civil Liberties Union estimates that the incarcerated population of the U.S. has surged by 700% since 1970. So we thought this would be an interesting opportunity to ask Professor McCree a few questions on this topic. How can we support the cessation of mass incarceration without endangering public safety? Does the system need to let people like Bloth out in order to affect meaningful change? Or are there other options? A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle. But it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Roe Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, 
you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Well, first of all, McCree says it's important not to buy into the narrative that releasing all nonviolent drug offenders will solve the problem. It's a nice thought, but it's pure fantasy. Drug and alcohol abuse do play a role in criminal behavior, but they're not the reason that most inmates are in prison. In state prisons, most of our individuals are there for violent crimes, 80% of them, but among those, most all of that 80% have a drug issue or an alcohol issue that has been a part of their behavior prior to their crime. McCree says that part of the issue is that we do, in fact, live in a violent society. Crime in the United States is different than crime in places like Western Europe. I think the public feels that we're, we're in a dangerous society. In terms of violent crime, the U.S. is higher than other economically developed countries. But in, in terms of property crime, we're not. We're, uh, we're lower than Western Europe. Uh, in, in fact, when security people from Western Europe come here, police come from Western Europe, they turn to us for ideas about how we keep these, uh, this level of crime so low. Police here are surprised. Why? You think we're low? We're, we don't think so, but, uh, but by European standards, uh, we're, we're low. So, so there's, uh, there's good news there. And why do we have more violent crime? Well, uh, we're violent uh, uh, society. It can be related to guns. It can be related to issues that are connected to racism in this country that, uh, that go way back to the early 17th century. And there can be other reasons as well. 
yeah, it's interesting. I'm curious, you know, in terms of things like the Rockefeller drug laws and, you know, the cocaine crack epidemic, um, things like that, you know, uh, were those kind of the main things that would change the system to make it much more longer? Uh, that certainly was uh, that certainly was one of them, the um, Rockefeller uh, uh, drug laws. But there were key pieces of uh, legislation that resulted in the um, th these were federal uh, acts, but they spurred the growth of state activity. Uh, and, and as you know, 90% uh, of the prisoners are in state institutions. But these three federal acts had incentives for the states to build more prisons or expand the laws that would lengthen the sentences. The Three Strikes Act uh, was encouraged by one of those federal laws. So federal legislation has a big impact on this. Professor McCree says that the mass incarceration problem is the responsibility of both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, both of which have supported harsher punishments. And there's a good reason for that. Being perceived as soft on crime is political kryptonite. At one point in our conversation, I brought up the case of William Horton. Horton was a felon who was sentenced to life for the murder of Joseph Fournier, a gas station attendant. In 1986, Horton left prison as part of a weekend furlough program. He used that opportunity to escape. The following year, he raped a woman and attacked her fiancé. He became a political issue in the 1988 presidential campaign. That year, supporters of then-candidate George H.W. Bush ran a photo of Horton in an ad bashing his opponent, Michael Dukakis. Dukakis had been governor of Massachusetts at the time of Horton's participation in the furlough program, and he had also supported the ongoing furlough program. Critics said the ad used coded language to stoke racial fears. Bush ended up defeating Dukakis in a landslide. The result of some of these political trends has been a prison system that has put punishment ahead of rehabilitation. Rather than working to become law-abiding, nonviolent, and productive members of society, prisoners are left to rely on joining gangs for protection. When they're released, a lack of job prospects pushes many back into a life of crime. Professor McCree has a few ideas on how to change things for the better. Exactly. You can see both political parties looking at something that their opponent has done that can serve as um, an avatar for their uh, campaign against that candidate. So, you know, there are some prisoners who cost the, the public hundreds of thousands of dollars a year per person, one person. Why? Because of the intensive medical care and um, court orders that uh, require 24-hour supervision of this one offender. I've seen such persons uh, in visiting various prisons. And part of reducing recidivism rates could be creating more meaningful experiences for prisoners. 
prisons could strive to be places where inmates could work to become a part of society again, or to heal from whatever prompted them to begin a life of crime in the first place. Well, uh, uh, certainly, look, uh, we are the U.S. of A. We should uh, be inventive uh, and get out of this uh, dark age of incarceration, which uh, we are experiencing now. So uh, it is an opportunity for uh, fresh thinking. And one area where the fresh thinking can occur is what happens to the incarcerated uh, person during her or his uh, period behind bars. There is no incentive on the part of correctional authorities to see persons released and not come back. In fact, the incentives are for them to come back because what will happen to the jobs if they don't come back? One of my graduate uh, classes, I posed the question one evening, we have this terrible revolving door. Supposing you had access to brain power and money for rewards, how would you change the situation? And the first student said, nothing can change it. Those people are behind bars because they belong behind bars. And the longer they stay there, the better. Well, in any case, uh, that might have just been to get my irritation. But as uh, the discussion went on, uh, people saw that there could be incentives for wardens and their staffs who had prisoners who did not come back. Would that be good for the community? Well, if they, if they did not come back, that means that they were not committing crimes. Uh, so, uh, and they weren't taking more money from the public pocket to pay for their incarceration. Fewer crimes and less incarceral costs, that makes sense. In fact, that would pay for itself substantially. Then there were one of these back of the envelope uh, calculations, you could see that if you reduce the incarceration rate just a little bit, you would, um, you would save the, the public a lot of money and still make those who wanted to finish spend time behind uh, bars were satisfied by what, what occurred. Okay, so uh, then the idea was provide incentives for the um, correctional facilities themselves to have offenders who are returning to the community offend at a less frequent uh, level. So that's what um, the idea was that came out of this uh, discussion, that it would have rich rewards for the uh, public purse, but it would also uh, help human capital by making the lives of these individuals and the, the circles in which they live more rewarding. You go beyond in-prison gambling and TV shows that they watch to activities that will lead to personality uh, changes. Uh, and uh, are there situations where that happens uh, successfully? Yes but it's not too common in the United States. There's no gold standard for this. The politicians are too frightened to um, demand a gold standard, 
to look at what's happening in countries like Germany or the Scandinavian countries or in Asia, like Singapore. Singapore, yes. At some point in our conversation, the concept of restorative justice came up. Restorative justice refers to a broad approach within criminal justice that focuses on achieving healing by establishing a connection and understanding between an offender and the person they harmed. In Professor McCree's view, restorative justice could play a part in a new rehabilitation-focused criminal justice model. Now, to circle back to Bloth, should everyone be rehabilitated? Is everyone worth a second chance? Or are there people who should be kept away from society forever? Restorative justice is, uh, is not a panacea. Uh, but for about half of the cases, say, at this point, there is a, a beneficial result from endeavoring to have restorative uh, justice processes where the, the offender and the offend can eyeball each other and hear what, what each other has to say about what took place in the past. When Bloth was captured, he certainly sounded incorrigible. The only reason I didn't kill him more was that I didn't have any more bullets, he told the papers. But, as far as we know, unless there are unsolved and unknown crimes that we're not aware of, he did not reoffend. But, were his crimes too great for him to ever deserve a second chance? Did letting him live out his days in Syracuse in some way diminish the value of the lives of Hans Hackman, Lawrence Kircher, and Irene Courier? Depending on your point of view, punishing criminals and seeking vengeance on behalf of the dead may sound irrational and base. Or perhaps you may consider it naive to think that the reform of violent offenders is even possible, let alone a worthy cause. So we also posed this question to Professor McCree. How can we as a society negotiate the balance between these two competing impulses? That's such a thoughtful question, and I believe that there may be some individuals who fit the category of incorrigible, that no matter how much we try with programs, with employment, and then helping them when they go out with uh, connections to the community and their, their families, there are some people that just will have learned crime so deeply that there's not much you can do about it. Yes, in effect, they can age out, get to be 70 and sick, and they're not going to do much. But if we're talking about younger adults, there may be some that just are not ready to be uh, released. This is something I always think about, and I, I wanted to get your sort of take on it and how you sort of think about it. Like, on the one hand, and I think a lot of I think a lot of folks, like, it, it's such an emotional thing when there's a murder, right? And on the one hand, a lot of people nowadays, I think, are increasingly talking about the need for lots of reform within how we punish people, or maybe the, maybe it should be about rehabilitation. But then I think a lot of people would be like, well, if my kid or mom or whoever got killed, I wouldn't want that person to ever, I'd want them to be punished. So like, how do we reckon with our emotions when talking about this very important subject in order to not dismiss those, but, you know, have a, have a realistic conversation about what, what can be done with prison reform. 
Well, we are a putative society. And when uh, individuals are sentenced to a term in the prison, they have lost the freedom. And that sounds like just a few words, but it's a profound changing in life circumstances. They can't call somebody, they can't wear something, they can't eat something, they can't decide where they will live or how they will live. It, they've lost their freedom. Uh, and that's the punishment of incarceration. Uh, but uh, to some people, that doesn't go far enough. Uh, they should be made really miserable while they're there. They want revenge. But what, as a society, we should uh, be looking for is uh, explaining uh, to the victims and the victims' uh, supporters, look, this is a really bad life to be locked up. Even if we give them good food and medical care, uh, three hots and a cot, it's still not a good life. You like to try it for a day for yourself, for even for one day, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's harsh. Therefore, your desire of seeing the individual punished is being met by the system, even in the best of circumstances. So now, don't you want that individual coming out of incarceration where that person will make a contribution to society, pay taxes, contribute to the community, do all the sorts of things that we feel responsible people should do? Yes, uh, that's what we should be aiming to achieve uh, during uh, the period of incarceration. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't you feel better as a citizen? We'd be curious to get your thoughts on this topic and the outcome of the Bloth case. Feel free to reach out to us at murdersheet at gmail.com. We'd like to thank Professor Robert McCree for taking the time to talk with us. It was a very thought-provoking conversation. For this episode, the final episode in our The Other Long Island Serial Killer series, we relied on a lot of reporting from Newsday, specifically articles by Don Smith, John Cummings, and Tom DiMarecki. Reporting from Edward Kirkman of the New York Daily News was also very helpful. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenlee, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet, and on Facebook at MSheet Podcast, or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure. And send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued 
by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.